Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So tonight, uh, we're starting the second part of our series on women artisans. Um, last time, we talked about bookmaking, uh, which is an exciting and <laughs> incredibly involved process. Yes. Um, we talked about glaziers and women who made um, stained glass windows, and we talked about women patrons, and we also talked a little bit about um, tradespeople and guilds and the way that women's membership um, may or may not be reflected in the guilds. Um, but I don't think we got too deeply into uh, what guilds really accomplish or, you know, lots of, there's a lot to be said about guilds, honestly. Yes. So that seems like a decent place to start. Awesome. I have to say, like, yes. the only thing I know <laughs> about guilds is that within the city of London, if you want to become the right honorable Lord High Mayor or mm. something, you have to start out yeah. as a member of a guild yes. and work your way through a very complicated system. Ooh. So this is actually a really important place to start. Because London, of course, was similar to most medieval cities. Modern mm -hmm. London is not medieval. But once upon a time, London was a medieval city. <laughs> right. And many medieval cities in Europe, across Europe, even sort of, you know, um, outside of Europe in some ways, in what we might consider Europe today... Um, Generally speaking, you know, a lot of places, sort of the trade routes where they went, um, there were guilds or equivalents of guilds. So looking specifically at Europe, um, it is worth pointing out, of course, also that certain parts of Europe, like Spain, um, definitely include multicultural groups as well, right? So this is not mm -hmm. a solidly Christian society. Um, Spain famously isn't, right? It has Christians and Jews and Muslims all there. Right. We're talking about before the Inquisition. Yes. Because the Inquisition is early the, modern. Yeah. The Reconquista. Yes. So that's, that's yes. of course, 1492, which is the famous yeah. <laughs> date in which somebody sailed across the ocean and some stuff happened. Yeah. Um, and that is, of course, sort of the end of the Middle Ages, right? 1500. So... And one of the reasons, of course, that that date is worthwhile, even when we talk about the global Middle Ages, as we have pointed out before, is because that is sort of the start of modern globalization. There is medieval globalization, but modern colonization, um, Spain sort of <laughs> beginning the colonization of the Americas, um, you know, all of the stuff that springs from that into the modern world begins around 1500. So it is a fairly good ending date. Um, but it is, you know, worth pointing out there, a lot of times we're sort of assumptions. Of course, there are always assumptions. So guilds are only male. Or, you know, for places like Spain, um, where there Muslims or Jews in guilds, where there women who are Muslims or Jews in guilds. Um, and that could be difficult because it is political. And that's, of course, the thing. It, it mm -hmm. was always political, which is why the right. Lord High Mayor point is a good point to start with. Um, that 
Absolutely. There was a sort of assumption that, for example, Islamic women weren't making certain crafts. Again, that is not true. Just like women were making crafts, everyone is doing things. But admittance into a guild means something specific. And that tends to be political. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, being in a guild, not just in London, but, you know, throughout Europe as a whole, sort of inclusive Europe, definitely tended to mean um, a sort of political stepping stone. So there are some interesting aspects to this. One of them, textiles. So we didn't talk as much about textiles last time because it is such a ginormous subject. And this right. time we're really going to confine ourselves kind of to women, but we are going to talk about <laughs> women in guilds and other things about textiles connected to women via textiles. Yeah. Aha. So, um, there are some, you know, obviously well-known women who definitely made textiles, right? There's no, no questions here about did women do things, which is a little mm -hmm. bit different from last time. Um, women were glazers and did make glass. Women did make books. They illuminated them. They wrote them. Not just, you know, they were authors, but they also were actual scribes. Um, all of those things are true, but that has taken a little more time and work to, for historians to sort of demonstrate. And of course, we run into that problem as per usual, you know, that if something is found, it's just assumed to have been done by a man. Right? Right. Um, and that's true in all sorts of ways. So like archaeology, um, I think we've talked before, I'm pretty sure about the, uh, the grave of the Viking warrior that was discovered, um, you know, quite a while ago. And someone noticed even... Oh, the one that they were debating um, why she had been buried with weapons and stuff. Yes. Well, you know, at the time, someone noticed that the um, pelvic bone sort of appeared to be female. But because of the way she was buried, while well, the skeleton was buried, yeah, it was just very clearly a warrior's grave. So they're just like, mm -hmm. well, the skeleton has to be male. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and much, much later, which is to say a few years ago, um, they tested the skeleton and the skeleton is female, right? DNA. Um, and then the people were like, well, maybe the bones were wrong or this or, you know, it's been a long time. It's been like a century. Maybe the bones got mixed up. So they like retested and they did various stuff even more recently. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the skeleton is female. This is the skeleton who's in the grave. And at some point you either say... Archaeology works the way we think it does, which is to say, you know, you find a skeleton in a grave with grave goods, and you're like, this skeleton was a whatever, right? A ruler, warrior, this, a warrior, yeah. a religious figure. Yeah, there are certain markers that we just accept. So this skeleton was a warrior. Mm -hmm. You know, fine. Um, and, I mean, the other side of this, of course... <laughs> is that there are all these myths of shield maidens, for example, right? Yes, um, uh, Val Valkyries. Yeah, right. absolutely, right? Um, we have talked about some of them, I think. So <laughs> um, the idea, of course, always was that these were myths that had no basis in reality. And of course, that is true to a certain extent. There was not necessarily an elite female army that we know of, like, you know, the Valkyrie. <laughs> um but uh, that doesn't mean that there could not have been a female warrior, right? They existed mm -hmm. in Japan. They have existed. The legend certainly existed in China, and Mulan may have some basis in reality. Um, so 
you know, they're few and far between, but there is some historic evidence for them in other places. Why not the Vikings, right? Mm -hmm. It's a hardy society where people kind of need to pull their weight. Right. You know, and we do know about some female rulers who went into battle, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So it's not, you know, like uh, Boudicca, the, you know, Celtic queen in Britain, right? So it's not like we don't know that these things could happen, right? Um, It's just that sort of the extra lengths to which people will go to deny it, basically, (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right. Um, okay, so when we get to textiles, there is absolutely no question of women doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the, the the interesting things that happen are a little bit different. So um, textile making, textile crafts tended to be considered very, very important. Right. So these are really right. high skill crafts. Which arguably they still are, right? I mean, these are very, very high skill crafts. Yeah. So we're talking about the entire, you know, life of, I don't, life cycle is probably the wrong word, <laughs> of but the like, textile. you start, right, you start with like the wool and spinning, carding and spinning the wool into yarn and then turning that into. Yes. A garment in some in some way. Yes. So I'm going to go through all of this stuff. Um, okay. But it's worth pointing out, you know, there are, of course, speaking of myths, this isn't myth, but there are literary figures. So the wife of Bath and Chaucer mm-hmm. um, famously is an, an amazing cloth maker. We're told that she's an incredible cloth maker, um, as good as sort of the um, Flemish cloth makers. So, um, you know, she's... A woman who is of just high enough status to have learned this craft, but also it's a reminder of how she married these three rich guys and got their money, but also she Mm -hmm. can absolutely support herself at that level of lifestyle, which is why she can be traveling. She's been all around the known world, basically. Um, So this is how she's done it, right? She did get all this money, but also (laughs) she has this skill, right? Yeah. So some of the things that women did. Silk making is one of the big ones. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, this is a high quality good. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. And so silk making is a really big one. I had a Thai professor whose mother did silk making. Wow. And uh, yeah, she showed us some of the stuff that she made and it, it's incredible. Yes. I mean, obviously, like she's using more modern techniques. Yeah. In as much as you as much as, much as, as you can, can. yes. <laughs> with silk making. Yes. Um, yeah. And I will say, so this is the flip side of what I just said, actually, that there's no question that women did this. On the other hand, right, as with the sort of Viking warrior grave, um, it's very easy, you know, you go to a museum or you go to a church and you look at, you know, they're like, look at this amazing wall hanging, look at this tapestry, look at this thing, mm-hmm. you know, that was made in the 1400s, the 1300s, whatever. Um, you know, we don't know who made it, but it was clearly made for this church or it was made for this palace. Or it was made, right. right. Um, and there is always an assumption that the artist was male, even when the craft is one that was dominated by women. If there are pronouns used on that plaque that you're reading that says something like, you know, the artist used silk and wove it with whichever other fibers or something like, you know, Mm -hmm. they probably use he. Mm. Um, And that's a huge problem because the chances are good that it was made by a woman, which means there's a lot of really amazing, intricate 
uh, textile work out there that was probably made by female artists um, that is not really attributed to them or thought of in this way, right? Um, so yeah, silk making is a big one, and there's sort of a lot of varieties of this. So um, there were the people who turned raw silk into yarn, right? Mm-hmm. And then there were silk weavers. And of course, you know, anyone anyone who's a spinner, like, that's a craft, but silk, turning raw silk into yarn is a specific craft, right? So that's a specific yeah. set of people. Um, and then weavers, of course, who produce, who, you know, produce the cloths, like ribbons, laces, other small silk goods. Um, and then there are the people who wove it or who sewed it into different items, mm-hmm. right? And then the traders, right? So then the people who sold it. Um, and so some of these... Pretty much all of the ones making the products are women. Um, the traders, though, frequently were men, frequently husbands, mm-hmm. possibly brothers, you know, <laughs> relatives. Um, and so the sort of issue here is that um, this usually was not guild work. It was at a level that could have been. But... Um, there are some exceptions that we'll go over, but actually London, for example, um, the silk makers did not gather into a guild. Mm-hmm. And so this turns out in the end to be a bit of an issue, um, actually, because the sort of absence of this guild, <laughs> of a guild for women um, silk makers, you know, in these various aspects of silk making in London... Um, as we hit the early modern period, um, so sort of the 16th and 17th centuries, mm-hmm. right? So 1500s, 1600s, we're into the early modern period. Um, men basically sort of took over control of silk working. Oh. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and so this change, you know, reflects a number of things. But one of the things is that because women weren't already a guild, as men become involved in this, because it, it becomes increasingly lucrative um, and... A lot of men who, right, there are guilds, for example, like the Weavers, Mm -hmm. really powerful guild, um, they end up deciding they're going to take control of silk weaving. And they end up forbidding anyone who, any men, but in this case men, of course, who are silk weavers, they forbid them from taking women as apprentices. Whoa. Okay. Yes, so they're actively trying to stamp women out of the profession, basically. And... 1577 and 1596, there are a few ordinances about this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, No woman is supposed to work as a silk weaver unless she's the widow of a guild member. Um, And then the one, there's a complaint, uh, 1595 or 6, of the weavers against immigrant weavers um, who are singled out (laughs) as being willing to share the secrets of their trade with women who then marry men and get those men into the guild. Ah. Right? So there's this awareness that obviously men who are in the guild, their wives are probably also doing the craft, but then there's a sort of like, what if the wives are actually the ones doing the craft? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The men are in the, the guild. The is sort of a figurehead. Yes. In the corporation. Yeah. Yeah, that it becomes a way of getting around the fact that they're actively trying to stamp women out of the guild so that they have full control over all textile weaving, Mm -hmm. you know, and each guild over its own aspect of the production. So I'm surprised by this. Were they actually raising silkworms in England or were they importing the the thread from 
China or somewhere? Um, there is a lot of importing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There's, there's generally importing. There's a lot of trade. Um, but this is why, right, the Silk Road, <laughs> famously. Right. That's why they call it that. Yes, because silk was really the driver of that trade. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that worms aren't raised other places. They are. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for best quality, this, that, and the other, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So that becomes, yeah, I mean, so this driver of trade back and forth. Yeah. Um, it is also worth pointing out. So there's a sort of question also about why the, um, specifically, right, um, about why the women don't form a guild in London, because there are some other mm-hmm. places actually where they do. And so, by the way, so Francis Consett, the London Weavers Company, talks about a lot of this specifically. Um, and in addition, that there are sort of specifically male companies that are established um, in the 1600s for silk throwers and silkmen, right? So... Mm-hmm. Women probably are still employed in some of those crafts, some of the crafts surrounding silk, right. um, but they're they're very much sort of, you know, the male aspects of the business are managing to control them. Um, and because guilds are, are political, right, and women do not have that clout, they are being controlled. Um, but anyway, Kowalski and Bennett um, have this great article, Craft Guilds and Women in the Middle Ages, um, that they wrote in sort of response to an article written um, in like 1923, I think, uh, by Marion Dale, where she okay. who wrote an article about the London silk the London silk women of the 15th century. And one of the just why this is sort of an interesting side note, Kolsky and Bennett both point out right that when Dale was writing. <laughs> She ended up writing, she wrote a whole MA thesis about this, a lot of this stuff, that women training as historians was newish, right? Yeah. Women, you know, being allowed into academia was newish. And one of the things that women were sort of interested in doing was finding out what other women had been doing. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And that this starts to be one of the first times that you know, people really did that. And we're sort of like, what What were the women doing? Why are the things women were doing not looked on as, you know, well? Or, you know, why we study silk making when men get into it. Why don't we study it when women are doing it? And so on. Um, you know, so the sort of reassessing. And again, things like reassessing, you know, you see a wall hanging in a church. That might have been done by a nun or by a noblewoman who donated it to the church. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, so all these reassessments. And so this is, a, so it's a really nice article. So they wrote it sort of in honor of her, and then they reprinted her 1923 article um, along with it. Um, and I bring it up also because, you know, whatever this episode comes out, people will hear now that <laughs> this week we've had a big old controversy, you know, not going to name the person, but we will call out the Wall Street Journal for publishing the op-ed about whether or not Dr. Biden should be allowed to call herself doctor. Yes. Um... And, oh boy. you know, in some way... <laughs> As a result, I've decided to start going by Meister. Yes, exactly. Magistra. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's actually a medieval journal, I mean, a journal, f- medievalist, a medievalist journal, a modern journal for about the Middle Ages and women <laughs> called Magistra. <Okay. laughs> yes. Um, which would actually be a Magistra, presumably, for the Latin pronunciation. Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But yes. So, 
you know, it's sort of the perfect reminder, though. <laughs> um, yes. It's that same question, right? You know, she's alive. And you're like, but did she really do that? <laughs> and even if she did it, does she deserve to say she did it? Yeah. So um, it's kind of the perfect reminder as we talk about these things. And people are like, well, this doesn't happen in the middle. You know, it happened in the Middle Ages. It doesn't happen now. Um, but it does. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, I had a professor who used to say, there is nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, probably like 87 or something. So yes. I could, at the time, I was like, well, yeah. But also, yes. he was right. <laughs> yes, this is the problem, right? So, um, you know, the issue here is that there are questions, and this is a question that they all ask. You know, why didn't these women form a guild? There are a few reasons, probably. One of them might have actually been the fact that London was still kind of a backwater. So that's why it's interesting you should bring up sort of trade and silk. Um, they are making these really high-quality goods, but they don't have the same luxury trade that certain other parts of Europe have. Um, mm -hmm. They're making them really for domestic market. Uh, so what they're getting, they might not be getting the highest quality materials. They're making very, very high quality products, but, you know, not for export to other places because they have their own sort of higher powered markets. Um, so that alone may have been one of the reasons, right, that they didn't manage to form themselves into a guild because it is a kind of contained mm -hmm. market. Um, and so the idea that, you know, men are sort of doing a lot of the trading, maybe their husbands are the ones selling their goods. Um, there was um, less of a sort of impetus for them to um, organize. Also, potentially because they were very specifically excluded from political access. Um, and this is something that mm -hmm. London does kind of very specifically. <laughs> um so there is this sort of element, um, you know, women do a lot of stuff, of course, throughout Europe. We've sort of talked about this, right? Um, they brew ale, right? They are midwives. Um, they spin a lot of stuff, um, you know, a lot of different fibers into yarns um, or threads. Yeah. But not all of those are high skilled crafts, right? Highly skilled crafts. Mm-hmm. And so there is also probably the element of women's work being looked down on just because women are doing it, even if it's highly skilled, right? There is also that problem, <laughs> um, you know, but you know, yeah. why would you need a guild, right? So there's probably a little mm -hmm. bit of that. That definitely doesn't ever happen today. Yes. <laughs> that professions that women go into are devalued. Right. Because they happen to be mostly women. Yes, like nursing. It's not like we don't <laughs> value our nurses or Teaching. pay them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's quite possibly part of it as well. Um, it's also, you know, worth noting that um, the same way, you know, as I said, that men end up kind of taking the guild, I mean, making it all these crafts into guilds mm -hmm. and sort of taking them over, um, that that happens in the 15 and the 1600s, really. But um, in 1452, <laughs> there is an ordinance um, applying to the London Shearman. Right, so shearing, shearman, shearing sheep. Yes. Meaning? Okay. Yeah. Um, that in that was that was a group. Like they organized. Yes. To be, you have to. Okay. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Huh. This is a. You want to come near a sheep with a pair of scissors? You got to come through <laughs> yep. us. It's a. You know, if you really know what you're doing, then 
to this day, like when you watch sure. people, it's a it's a thing. But um, yeah. So I mean, it's impressive. They just like, but yeah, yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Um, but anyway, so there is um, an ordinance that's um, sort of implies that female members could participate in elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really sort of momentous, um, moment, right? Um, because essentially women generally were not at all allowed to do any of these things. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that, you know, women could potentially participate, um, in the elections is a really sort of noticeable exception to the fact that, for the most part, um, London actually specifically excluded women from participation. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so this is an ordinance that, said, that implies at least that they could participate in elections. Um, also, women did sometimes work as technical supervisors in guilds. Um, there is an isolated incident of the dyers... So these are dyeing the wool after it's been sheared, right? Okay. <laughs> or dyeing cloth. I mean, you know, you dye various things, but mm-hmm. so dyers. In this case, the leather dyers specifically. Ooh, in 1372, okay. appointed three men and their wives as overseers. Hmm. But what it appears, it's not that the women were specifically elected. It's that the men were elected but clearly specifically men with wives who also were in the trade and worthy of being elected um, so that they would come as pairs, right? Okay. So that this was kind of a joint appointment. So there, you could say that maybe they were elected as couples, but also okay. maybe it's still kind of the men technically who are being elected, <laughs> right? Um, and it's a sort of reminder of the extent to which households frequently were sort of the locus of production, right? We don't have mm-hmm. factories in the Middle Ages. That's why we're artisans. So there is an extent to which the household can very much be a sort of locus of production, and everyone sort of does it, right? You train up your kids, um, you know, so this is... That's why you have kids, yes, right? exactly. So that you have an extra... It's like this, if you work in on a farm, you have kids so that somebody will, like, go bring in the sheep, and if you live in the city, you... Yep. You need somebody to whatever yes. help make needles or yep. exactly you know. yeah um, yeah exactly so it's not clear that it's sort of a recognition that women have rights as leather dyers or like separate rights or their own rights as leather dyers you know so there's a there's a little bit of an iffy thing there um, generally speaking in fact um, it was a little bit more typical <laughs> um, f- for. You know, this is why the exemption there for the for the Sherman, um, that London really tended to specify that, first of all, women could not be mistresses in guilds. That's the highest, right? Master, mistress, right? That's mm-hmm. the highest. Under that is journeyman or woman, you know, apprentice, right? Um, that the highest privileges could belong to widows who took over from their husbands, but they still couldn't hold office in the guild. Um, and even if you okay. could hold office in the guild for which there were rare exceptions, that that was not an entrance into civic life. Ah, so you couldn't do, what is it? You become like a sheriff of London and yep, eventually 
you work your way up. Yeah. So you could not have a woman. Yes. And that was, of course, the point. <laughs> that was the point of all those things, right? Which is why we don't want a woman to be right. mayor. So if you basically, yeah, absolutely. Right. So if you had an exemption, um, you know, it had to be really specific <laughs> as to what yeah. the women were going to be allowed to do, because they definitely weren't going to be allowed to ever get obviously to mayor, but certainly to, you know, <laughs> whatever else. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So shearmen and cloth workers, you know, shearmen aren't necessarily just shearing the sheep, right? They're, you know, caring for the wool and doing all these other things. I mean, that's, um, and then of course you have fullers, you know, so you have all of these, and this is the thing, right? You have all of these steps and each of them is specialized and each of them gets a guild basically. Mm hmm. Right. Um, and it's just that women, you know, have trouble with that. So um, it is worth pointing out, though, right, that silk working, it is this really high skill craft. It makes a lot of money. Um, women could get lucrative contracts for doing this. It's not a sideline. It's not something women did just sort of around caring for their kids. Um, girls did serve long apprenticeships to learn the crafts. Right. Wives could mm -hmm. continue to work in this craft, even if their husbands were in a different guild. Mm hmm. And they could train girls, right? So it really is a skilled craft um, and worked a lot of the ways that guilds did work, but without that sort of official aspect. Um, that being said, there were a few occasions, I think about six occasions between 1368 and 1504, which of course is right at the end when they start to, they're going to start losing their privileges to men who are going to join and kind of take it away. Right? Yeah. Um, but there are a few occasions on which the, London silk workers, silk workers, right, predominantly women, sought protection of their craft and trade through petitions presented um, either to the mayor or to parliament, um, and mostly those requests were granted. So guilds, of course, the whole point is you protect your trade, you protect yourself, you know, tariffs, imports, whatever. Um, so the occasional moments when they needed to do that, even though it was mostly domestic trade at this point, you know, the times when they did need to do that. They did band together and they sort of got those things done, but they did not end up as a guild. Mm -hmm. All right. So moving on to larger Europe, um, this does change a little bit when we move out of London, which is important. F female dominated guilds. So women that we ended here last time, right? That women are members of guilds, mm -hmm. but usually tiny percentages. Yeah. Um, but there like, are. Yeah. I think we talked about up to 25% in some cases. Yes. Yeah. But. That's still, like, not that much no. overall. Right. And remember, you know, they're still not usually allowed to hold office or to become, you know, various overseers, things like this, right? So, um, yeah. So, you know, they they get to ply their craft, possibly take over from their husband when he dies, or their brother or whoever, um, father. But, you know, not necessarily any more than that. Um, and by the way, you know, the reason mm -hmm. I keep saying not just take over from your husband, but also, you know, maybe your father, your brother, and so on, um, is because there is, um, you know, there's a ratio, <laughs> there's an unbalance between men and women <laughs> in the Middle Ages, right? The late Middle Ages, mm -hmm. you've got ratios depending, but it could be anywhere from like 75% as many men as women to 90%, right? So, wow. yeah, so there are way more women than men. Um, so women did stay single or did not remarry after their husbands died. Not necessarily because they were being, you know, whatever, loyal to his memory or something, but because, like, there just weren't men, right? Do we know why? Is it just men were more likely to 
die. Yep. Yeah. From doing stupid things or wars or whatever. Yeah, it's actually still true. Um, but not usually mm-hmm. to that extent, obviously. But yeah, yeah. because, um, you know, more men are born, but then women live longer. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and so, yes, in the Middle Ages, this is even truer, because, of course, once you survive infancy, essentially... Mm-hmm. Um, yes, men are more likely to die in, yes, things like war <laughs> or violence or, you know, Darwin Awards, whatever it is. Right. All of which is true, apparently. I mean, it's still true, you know, largely. Mm-hmm. Um, less so about wars maybe these days, although it still is, really. Depends on where yes, you live. Yes, it depends very but, much on yeah. where you live. Um, yeah, you know, and, and women live longer, right? And that is that is still always true. Right. If women survive childbirth or if women are single and don't have kids, you know, women will outlive men, generally speaking. So, yes. So essentially, like the older you get, then the (laughs) more women there are to men. So especially, you know, if you're widowed, you know, let's say in your 40s or 50s, there there might not be any men to marry. Right. You know, if you're married, even if you're in your 30s, like, you know, who's to say? So um, (laughs) that's. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this imbalance. Um, so that's why, you know, when I say, like, you might take over from your father or your brother, um, mm-hmm. as well as your husband. You know, and if you do take over from your husband, it could then be a while. I think we brought up Vigil Raber last time, right, in the theater sort of workshop he had. His wife took over after he died. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's very common. But other male relatives are also possible <laughs> um, because of this sort of interesting imbalance. Um but anyway, so that being said, there are some female-dominated guilds, um, and most noticeably um, in Rouen, Paris, and Cologne. Um, and these are all guilds that are similarly luxury textile trades. Um, and in Rouen, there are at least five female-dominated guilds, and this is one of the city's big exports right, uh, is sort of luxury textiles, um, and including in, um, you know, again, right, this is, London is not doing this sort of large export business, except domestically, right, but the continent is, right. Um, so we have, for example, right, um, the spinners, um, over 80% of them are women, um, and they have eight okay. sort of um, rulers, <laughs> um, right? So eight members of the guild who kind of rule the guild, um, and two of them are women. So that is okay. huge. <laughs> and then the linen merchants, um, there are two types of linen merchant uh, that are predominantly female-dominated guilds. Uh, ribbon makers and embroiderers. Um, so okay. all those are female-dominated guilds uh, in Rouen. Um, in Paris... Um, you've got five at sort of even early, oh, sort of not early, but the high Middle Ages, you've got five and you get two more a little bit later in the late Middle Ages. Um, in this case, spinning silk, <laughs> uh, weaving silk, producing various types of sort of fancy headgear and purses decorated with silk and gold thread and pearls. Oh. Yeah, so there are these sort of five guilds that are specialized in these types, types of um, textile and, you know, craft, craft work. Okay. Um, and these are, again, female-dominated guilds. They're operated independently of husbands or sons or, you know, whoever, male relatives. Um, in this case, 
women could be so this is Paris, right? These sort of special luxury textiles. Right. Um, women could become guild mistresses. Hmm. Uh, and that's regardless of marital status. So not only you don't have like your husband isn't in the guild, but also you don't have to be married to become you could be a single woman or a widow, right, and become a you know, mistress. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're a widow, you would have been married, of course, but you could become, you could be a single woman and become a mistress. Um, so you can actually become a mistress. Remember in London, um, you know, generally speaking, even when women were in guilds, you sort of couldn't move up that far. Um, the Embroiderers Guild, uh, 93 members, 81 women and 12 men. <laughs> wow. And none of the women identified as wives... Right, so they were identified from the guild records as wives of someone, but their husbands weren't in the trade, right? They weren't embroiderers, they weren't in a trade connected to this business. Yeah. So this was their thing. Yes. Um, and none of the 12 women identified as daughters had fathers in the trade. Ta-da. Um, so in fact, this is another one where women absolutely got to train women. So you had female apprentices. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like that connection was actually more important. Um, so the Embroiderers Guild did include four sets of mothers and daughters and four sets of sisters. Aha. Right? So no women who are in the guild because of men, but a number of women who are in the guild because of women. Yes. Um, which is cool. Okay. Yes. Yay. Um, yeah. So there's a definite sort of independence here between the women, you know, and what they are doing mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, any male relatives and so on, which is cool. Um, some of the guilds in Paris also do have female governors, you know, in various mm -hmm. roles. Um, and one of them, the weavers of silk headdresses, was actually managed exclusively by women. Yeah. Okay. So this is all from Kowalski and Bennett. Uh, and that's a really sort of important thing, because usually, even in the guilds that did have some women in charge, um, you know, it's there are more men who are put in charge. And in some cases, even mm -hmm. guilds dominated by women had men who were put in charge who didn't know the craft. Oh. Right? Um, and it does seem that even in sort of the silk headdresses, um, that the women were appointed by sort of the city council or provost. Um, so they weren't elected, right? They still are sort of kept out of the mm. political realm. You don't get to be elected, even mm. by women for women. Okay. Um, but at least, right, you do have women in the, who are part of this, right? There are other cases where men are sort of appointed. Right. You know, it's like having a board. On their behalf. Or yeah, something. it's like having a board yeah. oversee a museum or something just because they're wealthy and not because they know anything about what's going on, right? They're just sort of there to be sure. the political wing, but they don't necessarily know anything about the craft. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, sort of annoying. Um, because, of course, the male guilds do tend to uh, get to elect their own officials, right? Um, yeah. Also, it's worth pointing out there are two guilds of silk spinners <laughs> who are differentiated by the size of spindle that they wow. use. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, and they're exclusively female. The purse makers are exclusively female. And we should remind everybody that everyone in the Middle Ages wore a purse. Um you know, yes. purse strings. We there are tons of you know. If you know Shakespeare, you've heard this a lot. Um, everyone has a purse because you you have to have somewhere to keep your stuff, right? Um, mm -hmm. So purses aren't just for women, but they are made exclusively by women in this guild. Um, in this case, right? Um, yeah. So anyway, um, there is this sort of interesting element of um, 
you do have these sort of women who are important, um, the small spindle, small spindle silk spinners. <laughs> the small spindle silk spinners um, did have two women also who were sort of in charge, um, but also then again, men who were put in charge as well. Um, Anyway, okay. so that's the sort of, you know, important. Um, so that was Paris, by the way. And a little bit later, you know, by the last decade of the 13th century, we get two more guilds. So there are five, and then there are two more. So there are being seven guilds that are predominantly women. Um, and the two later ones are the embroiderers um, and the makers of fancy embroidered purses. Yeah. Um, okay. There are mixed guilds. So the guilds that are not predominantly women, but do have enough women in them to be considered mixed, right? So this isn't just like the four, twelve, you know, twenty percent. This is truly sort of mixed guilds. The linen merchants, which of course makes sense, right? Because um <laughs> you know they're making yes, the linen. Exactly. Uh but also the bathhouse keepers, the makers of pins, rosaries, and various types of silk adornments. Um Okay. So these are also all very mixed. Um a lot of women. Um, and then Cologne, by the way, late medieval Cologne. This was our third sort of big city with a lot of women partaking. Um, mm-hmm. I think last time we mentioned sort of some female bookmakers in Cologne or illuminators. Um, they, of course, didn't have a guild. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a sec. but um, Or they didn't yet, certainly. Um, but there are three women's guilds. Uh, silk makers, linen yarn finishers, and gold thread spinners. Okay. Yes. Leading to things like Rumpelstiltskin, presumably. <laughs> um, yes. Yay. Um, but anyway, so women, yeah, they could, women in these guilds could run their own businesses, train their own apprentices. Yeah. And they, you know, worked at a skilled, prestigious, lucrative craft. Um, in Cologne, a lot of them, their husbands did sell their stuff for them, um, but they did have power. They had guild power. They had apprentices, journeywomen. Some of them became mistresses, you know. Um so it is important, and it's also important to note that women managed to stay in those positions a lot longer, whereas, remember, London, where men eventually do form guilds and shove the women out of these crafts, um, mm-hmm. on the continent, women are less shovable because they have these guilds. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So moving on a little bit from that, worth pointing out that there are a lot of high-skilled crafts that don't have guilds, even when there are a lot of men in them, like bookmaking, right? Because that... Mm-hmm. For a long time, we should actually say manuscripts, because <laughs> we're not talking about printing, where, of course, there are printer's guilds. We're talking about making manuscripts. Um, and that tended to happen in monasteries and convents, right? So you don't have a guild because you're already in a, you're in an order, right? Guilds are civic orders. <laughs> and, you know, nuns and monks are in religious orders. Like, that's, right. you know. Um, so... It's a highly skilled craft that isn't part of a guild. Um, and it's worth pointing out that embroiderers do get a guild. Uh, certainly later in the Middle Ages, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, but embroidery uh, and certain types of weaving and tapestries, right? It's the sort of thing that a lot of women absolutely did. Um, and even when embroiderers didn't have a guild, that was absolutely a craft that um, women learned, especially aristocratic women learned. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that's a very high quality craft. And um, in Ireland, it's worth pointing out, um, there um, a sort of there's a set of laws, basically, <laughs> um, that are discussed um, 
that reference, um, they're specifically referencing the value of a needle. <laughs> um, someone has pledged a needle. Oh. Basically. Okay. Um, yes. And the needle, right, um, is considered very high value. Um, and so there's this collection of Irish law texts that are from like the 7th or the 8th century, 7th and 8th centuries. Um, and okay. one of the comments says, um, for the woman who embroiders earns more profit even than queens. Wow. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So the needle is seen as a pledge, you know, that's sort of worth a lot of money, basically. <laughs> right. This embroidery needle. Um, and of course, there's an interesting point because it's a very highly skilled craft that could make you a lot of money, but also absolutely queens and other aristocratic women did do this. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some interesting things that it was kind of similar to manuscript production in this way. Um, there were specific circles of women who did this. Uh, in Ireland, they were not necessarily in guilds, but it was a very highly skilled craft done by women who were very important. And Irish women were allowed to bequeath things, such as to churches, um, or gift things, such as with churches, um, that they made with their own hands. Okay. Also, they could enter into contracts with craftsmen. You know, they, you didn't need a husband or you didn't have to have a man do that for you. You could enter as a woman you could, could enter. contract directly. Yeah, with craftsmen. And... Possibly they could also enter contracts directly as craftswomen themselves, right? Okay. So you could make something for a church, for example. Mm -hmm. Which is why I sort of said a long time ago, um, the fact that, you know, it's it's one of these things. You go into somewhere and you see, you know, these beautiful silk things that were made for the church, right? Altar coverings and, you know, all these beautiful textiles. Yeah. Um, and the likelihood that a lot of them were made by women, right? But this isn't something that quite comes up somehow. Right. right, But probably a lot of them absolutely were. Um, and there's a really sort of um, interesting example. There's a, a stole, right? So this is a priest's stole um, mm -hmm. uh, in Spain um, that was sold out of older embroidered pieces by someone named Maria, who hopes to be remembered in the prayers of the community. Um, she was probably an abbess. <laughs> Um, in the second half of the 10th century. Um, okay. And she has sewed together a stole out of several older pieces of embroidery that seem to have been made um, in a Byzantine workshop in Rome before the second half of the 9th century. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So about 100 years before her. Um, Byzantine, Rome. <laughs> Byzantine workshop in Rome. These things travel to Spain, right? Trade networks. Mm -hmm. and eventually get made into a stole by an abbess there, right? Okay. And it's a wonderful sort of reminder of trade, <laughs> first of all, of course. Um, but also, uh, you know, we wouldn't know that she was the one who crafted this together if she hadn't put her name on it. I mean, literally, right? <laughs> right. So it's a stole, right? Um, it's for a man. It might have been assumed that it was made by one, but it was not, mm -hmm. right? Um, and also the specifically we know that it was crafted in the place where it is now in Spain, even though the pieces traveled there. But the pieces traveled there. The stole didn't travel there. Mm -hmm. Right? The pieces of embroidery traveled there and were turned into the stole. Um, so it's a sort of interesting reminder also of not just sort of trade networks and all these things, but the ways in which textiles, you know, get shaped. Right? Mm -hmm. Textiles are made to be turned into things. And sometimes you have one thing and maybe part of it gets destroyed or something, you know, and you turn it into something else, right? Yeah. This is, you know, 
quilts, right? <laughs> like the G's bend quilts. Yes. This is, you make, someone has a shirt, it you can't be worn anymore, you put it into your quilt. Yeah. Right? I was going to say, I, I have a quilt upstairs that I made um, from part of an old bed sheet. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, we also own a quilt that was made um, from a bunch of different pairs of blue jeans. Yep. Um, I did that. That one I didn't make, but it's a very nice quilt. Yeah. No, absolutely. So. Right. Yeah. So there's this sort of interesting reminder um, of the way these things get shaped. And um, there's also, <laughs> so this is a great one. Um I figure we should have a quick reminder before we get to the end, right? Women are still identified with textiles, but that's, of course, tricky, right? Um, and it's one of these things, there's a, an article I teach in class, um, Stedman, about archaeology, and how archaeologists, right, to what extent can you recognize a gendered space, right? For example, a grave is not automatically gendered, but you try and guess by what's in it, <laughs> right? So right. we come back to the Viking grave of turns out to be a woman, even though a warrior, though, right? A warrior woman. Um, and so how do you figure these things out? You know, and it can be tricky because you might think, well, spinning, you know, but spinning isn't automatically female. Sometimes it is, mm -hmm. sometimes it isn't, but it's not necessarily a female identified craft. Um, and you might think, well, if it's in a domestic space, but again, that's really tricky because sometimes... You don't recognize a domestic space. Sometimes women were expected to work in public spaces. You know, mm -hmm. gendered th ideas work differently everywhere. So it's worth remembering, right, that textiles, we associate women with textiles. And yet, you know, how often have you, listeners or whoever, um, wandered in somewhere, seen a textile and been like, well, it's hanging on the wall, so it was probably made by man, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's very, very common to assume, even though... You know, some of the most famous literary textiles, um, you know, Penelope weaving all the way through the Odyssey, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, her tapestry. Um, she's the one the, making uh, it. bio tapestry, too. Yes, absolutely. Which, of yeah. course, is embroidered. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. Which, like, I remember being in an airport and seeing a piece of art that someone had done where they, like, it was actually, like, a pretty cool piece of art where they had cut up basically old soda cans and stuff and made mm -hmm. it into a quilt. But I was Ooh. kind of angry that it was like this publicly displayed piece of art that was obviously riffing on quilting, but it had been made by a guy. And yes. I, I had this moment of being like, because it's a male artist doing a thing, he gets all the recognition, but also, you know, like super... Like, the super cool quilters like Bisa Butler, I wouldn't expect to see her stuff displayed in an airport. Like, that Well, you never weird. know, because they're projecting her stuff onto the Art Institute or something. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Her and Monet. <laughs> through, like, the end of January or something. <laughs> um, so you never know, which is super awesome. Um, but I do actually possibly want to speak to that, because, um, yes, I teach about quilting, and... Um, I mean, various things, you know, as a craft and yes, all the ways we think about it. Um, yes. But I don't know who you're thinking of specifically necessarily as an artist, but there. I don't even remember what airport it was. I have to say, it was probably somewhere in Colorado, so. Yeah. Um, but there know. is an artist, um, who, who does do this sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. 
who is really an interesting um, African artist, Ghanaian. Um, and here's a quick, so this okay. is Lagama, an article by Lagama, uh, The Essential Art of African Textiles, I think is what it's called, mm -hmm. the article. Um, and this is, um, yeah, Ellen Natsui, uh, who's Ghanaian, and who says, the scope of meaning associated with cloth is so wide, I've not heard it more aptly and succinctly put than by Sonia Clark, that cloth is to the African what monuments are to Westerners. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a brilliant quote. Indeed, their capacity and application to commemorate events, issues, persons, and objectives outside of themselves are so immense and fluid, it even rubs off on other practices. Interesting. Yeah. And so he discusses, um, right, the men who rove kente cloth mm -hmm. in Ghana, right, um, and using textiles as sort of leitmotif in his sculptural work, right? Um, and yeah. so, yes. And so um, there is this sort of, um, he's done some italic work. I mean, you might, I don't know if he did the one that you saw. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. But he does do things like that. But in that case, right, it's a reminder of um, the ways in which textile weaving is, right, in certain parts of Africa, very much identified mm -hmm. with men. Right? Yes. Um, so that's that sort of... You know, it's and African textiles themselves are like really interesting and complicated. Yes. And well, can we re-mention Yankashoni Bara, other... who we've mentioned <laughs> before? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. all I had to say. Re-mention him. Okay. And textiles. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because no, there's all the um, you know, we think of in the I guess in the West kente cloth as being sort of African, but it's like very specific to. Certain parts. Yes. Certain parts, yes. right? And there's specific patterns in many types of cloth that mean specific things. Yeah. Like Scottish kilts or whatever. Scottish tartans. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I ordered a dress from a, a woman who makes um, really awesome stuff in Nigeria from, like, basically Dutch wax Yes, which is Shoni Barr's point, right? Are, the Dutch wax fabrics yeah. are, of course... They're originally made for Indonesia, didn't work out. Yeah. But yeah, but they're sort of, they're European, I should, right? They were also mm -hmm. made in the Netherlands, certainly, but they were part of the, you know, Atlantic, Mid-Atlantic, the Atlantic Passage, right? The Triangle yeah. Trade. Um, so cotton went from the Americas to Europe, where they made the cloth. They Indonesia didn't want it, so they started trading with Africa. Africa loved it. Unfortunately, right, the African complicity in the slave trade comes up. Um, so trading it to people, and to Africans, <laughs> for mm -hmm. enslaved people, who then were taken to the New World, where they picked cotton. Yes. Right. And we get the, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although today... Um, today, different, yes. You know, right. Besides that, there's... Um, it's still considered... Like, very different, I, f I think, like, different types of fabrics, like, tell people different messages. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, like, it's it's really complicated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yes. To, you know. Yeah. And to the point where, as, a, as an outsider to the, the culture, I don't really have any right. sort of handle on that. No. But, well, I mean, um, I can't read the Scottish tartan. Like, yeah. I don't know what clan you are, but hey, you know, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> appreciate, yeah. you appreciate the beauty, right? 
Um, yeah. But no, absolutely. Yeah. Shoni Barra, right. This, his work specifically sort of deals with that fact, right? This, this thing that has become so African. I actually read like yesterday in Minnesota, there's a company that makes, that's used to be Swedish. I mean, it's been American ever since the founders founded it in Minnesota. Right. But it's been around for like a hundred years or more. And, um, basically, <laughs> um, they make lots of things like Lutfisk and stuff. And. Oh, God. Yes. And and the cod that Lutefisk comes from, so like pre-Lutefisk, like just the dried cod. And it turns out this is a staple of uh, cooking in certain parts of Africa because mm. of colonialism, of course. But not just colonialism, sure. partly colonialism, but also, more importantly, um, after, well, I mean, it's all tied to colonialism. But um, the point is that it's not just tied to Norway doing terrible things so much it's tied to um you know after wars so like world war one and two of course there was tons of destruction in africa belgium you know all these things and um norway at one point donated just like tons and tons and tons of these um pre lutefisk dried cod because they last for years basically sure you know they and then you can do anything. Whatever you do, you pop them in water, they pop back to like mm -hmm. immediate freshness, and you do whatever you want. Cod has a lot of protein in it. I know that. Yeah. So it's become this like staple, basically. You put them in stews, okay. all this stuff, right, of certain of certain areas. And um, so there was this article about um, the fact that this company, uh, their Lutefisk uh, buying population is going down. <laughs> Um, huh. but the, there's a, because of the African immigrants in Minnesota, the, uh, <laughs> I don't know, dried cod demographic has like exploded basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so they actually have started to advertise at, um, you know, sort of different, uh, festivals, um, in you know, Minnesota, Minneapolis, um, you know, like Nigerian festivals, uh, because it's such a huge staple <laughs> and so important. And, you know, they make it right there and they have this huge demographic sure. for it. Okay. And the, and some people do approach it with mixed feelings because it absolutely has this sort mm -hmm. of overtones of colonialism. But on the other hand, sure. it's, I guess, very, very delicious, of course. So, you know, like, <laughs> Um, yeah, the sort of mixed bag. So, like, Dutch wax fabrics. Mm -hmm. Food, we didn't get into that side of food. We might later. Um, yes. But yes, textiles absolutely have this sort of interesting side. Um, but I was going to say, so, uh, it is worth pointing out, we didn't really mention stone. Women do show up tiny numbers of stonemasons and so on in guilds. Um, it is worth pointing out that um, the same article that talks about um, oh, Jennifer Negriday, um has this article of women, um, you know, as embroiderers, mm -hmm. and that was the Irish laws, right? Um, and the extent to which women, em you know, embroidering really was a high craft, and how, you know, the extent to which you the textiles you look at <laughs> probably come from women, right? The high-class textiles probably yeah. come. Um, but she is talking very much about Ireland particularly, um, and there's a reference to a female right with a w right <laughs> yes <laughs> female mm -hmm. right meaning a probably a woodworker but possibly a stone worker 
Okay. Which is interesting. Um, because it does hint at the possibility that there could be women doing these things. There are definitely women who are patrons, who are paying to have buildings built, and who may have had a say in the architecture. Right? But mm-hmm. this gives a hint that there might have been women who are actually doing the work. Um, and another example of this, which is interesting, um, in an article by Wicker um, about Scandinavia, um, there's a runestone. Runestones are very common. I think we talked last time about the um, literacy, right, in Scandinavia. And yes. so this ties to, I don't think we, I don't remember if we went into this in detail, but I don't think we did, but we might have. Uh, I mentioned it again, though. Um, runestones, you know, were because of the sort of literacy, they're all, all over the place. And there's a runestone mm-hmm. from between 800 and 1050, um, which reads, uh, Gunvor, Thudric's daughter, made a bridge in memory of Astrid, her daughter. She was the handiest maiden in Hadland. Okay. Right. So there are a few things here, right? The runestone is probably, it's a little bit legal because it's a way of referencing, right, this woman. Um, presumably sort of this means like male relatives are dead. Her daughter's also died. This is, this is all hers. But also she made this bridge, Right, this is a thing you did in Scandinavia. You didn't. You built chapels, sure, but also you built bridges, <laughs> literal bridges. Okay, <laughs> you built literal bridges, um, and so she had this bridge built in memory of her daughter. But of course, the specific thing here also, right, the handiest maiden, um, and so we have. You know, the article talks about the actual word hernerst, um, superlative feminine noun singular. Uh, sorry, nominative. Superlative, feminine, nominative, singular, <laughs> adjective. It's an adjective, obviously, right? Um, which is sort of, it's a sort of uncommon adjective, hanar, which is the, mm-hmm. you know, non-superlative, um, which means most handy or most skillful, but maybe sort of most nimble-fingered, right? So very, okay. um, which does imply textiles like weaving or embroidery. Right. Um, although the person who writing this article, Wicker, um, sort of suggests that it's actually possible that the daughter did do something more like carving. That's not impossible. Right. Um, you know, it's possible her daughter was just such an amazing craftswoman at textiles that this is commemorated in the bridge. And it was common mm-hmm. to build bridges, you know, as commemoration. But it's also possible her daughter did something that was more connected to bridge work. Like carving, and that would be an extra reason to not only build a bridge, but to mention in this rune, runestone uh, that her daughter was handy, right? Um, so you know, there's a little bit of openness about um, the extent to which women—they certainly did participate in other things. There are these sort of small percentages that we know of, but there's just not a lot of proof otherwise about what they were doing. Um, so here, you know, some possible little mentions of of some other things that are interesting. All right, final thoughts. Um, we were asked about plant fibers. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure that we have the time to talk about them really right now, but we could mention briefly here at the end <laughs> that, of course, fibers come from animals frequently, right? Wool, this is what we've talked about. Fur, hair, I mean, all of these things get woven silk, into fibers. Yeah. Yes, silk is definitely. Plant fibers, obviously today we use cotton, but that was not a thing. Um... So you tend to get flax and hemp. These are the big ones. Okay. And it's worth pointing out, um, so what are the sort of really, really old sites from Turkey that I think we've mentioned before, but I'm not sure. Um, Çatalhöyük. So one of these really old sites. Um, recently, but by recently I mean 
you know, some years ago now, <laughs> like seven years ago now or something. Anyway, um, they found a 9,000-year-old piece of fabric. Hemp. Ow. Yeah, hemp woven fabric. Okay. Um, it was on the in the ground of a burned house. Um, it had been wrapped around a skeleton of a child, a baby. Um, okay. And uh, Ian Hoder from Stanford, archaeologist, um, found it, or, well, wrote the thing about it. You know, his team found it, I suppose. Um, so it's this very, very thin piece of linen, right? Linen tends to mean plant fibers, um, but does not have to mean flax, you know. Um, so hemp. Okay. Um, and probably came from Eastern Mediterranean, sort of central Turkey area, right? So definitely traveled to the part of Turkey where it was found. It was already known that sort of obsidians and seashells and things had been exchanged in long distance trade. Apparently, this fabric was also part of this trade. You know, fabric okay. <laughs> doesn't necessarily last as long as shells or obsidian, right? Well, this one did, though. Yeah. So, um, you know, but that also could be why they didn't know before that fabric was part of this trade. Um, but anyhow, so hemp, hemp and flax are both incredibly old. Um, we mentioned wall hangings before, mm -hmm. and um, there are some famous. Um, you know, there's an article where some people, some scientists, come, sort of studied um, 10 Scandinavian church wall hangings, especially from Sweden, between the years of 780 and 1420. And it had been assumed that they were all flax with wool. So there was wool sort of, you know, as part of the woven aspect of these textiles, mostly tapestries. Um, but it was discovered that, in fact, one was hemp only with wool, and three were hemp and flax with wool. Okay. Um, and some of the famous ones that they studied um, are Uverhugdal tapestries, which are well known. They're sort of five pieces. Um, they're these sort of wall hangings. Um, there are two that are hemp and flax, um, and then the other three are just flax with wool. But two were hemp and flax with wool. So, um, yeah. There's some fun new testing methods, basically, to be able to figure this out. Um, oh, okay. And so it's starting to turn out that, because it was assumed for a long time that just things were flax, right? If they were, if it was a really fine linen, mm -hmm. it was flax. Um, and now, you know, hemp, it was known that hemp could be used this way, but, um, sure. and of course, now it's turning out that that's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. Maybe not as yeah. common, but certainly common, used in fine textiles, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention Twelfth Night, uh, Sir Toby Belch to Sir Andrew, <laughs> Sir Andrew Eggycheek, um, making fun of his hair. You know, he says, Sir Andrew says, you know, had I but followed the arts, and Toby says, um, then hadst thou an excellent head of hair. Sir Andrew, why would that have yes. mended my hair? Sir Toby, past question, <laughs> for thou seest it will not curl by nature. Sir Andrew, but it becomes me well enough, does not? Sir Toby, excellent. It hangs like flax on a distaff, and I hope to see a Hussif take thee between her legs and spin it off. <laughs> All right, so it is a dirty joke, um, but also a reminder of how <laughs> yes. the extent to which flax was absolutely sort of synonymous with linen, just the way cotton is now. Um, yeah. But also things like flaxen, right? Flaxen-haired. You know, it it is absolutely, it was a synonymous <laughs> um famous 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 uh you know fiber <laughs> yeah for thousands and thousands and thousands of years yeah but hemp you know as well was used a lot um 
There's some others. Nettles and thistles were used, certainly, as well. You know. Uh, but these are sort of the two staples. Um, and of course, it's worth pointing out, hemp is a really good staple, which is one of the reasons why it is sort of it's, illegal in the U.S. <laughs> hemp advocates have been telling us for yeah, it's true. years and years. It is actually yeah. true, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, cotton's got to protect its whatever interests, <laughs> I guess. Um, but anyhow. Yeah. So that is... That is our plant fibers that we were asked about. Cool. And I feel like that is a good place to stop. <laughs> yeah, I think this is uh, about where we have to leave off for the evening. Um, and who knows what we'll talk about next week. Yep. So I haven't got that far. Stay tuned. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed our program, you can always rate us on iTunes or just tell a friend about us. Um, we'd love to uh, have, you know, more listeners, I guess, who like us. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we have a Facebook page, which is Ask Medievalist. Um, and you can go there to get announcements about what we're up to and notes on new episodes. We have a website, which is askmedievalist.com. And we also, through the website, have a form that you can fill out um, to ask us questions and we do eventually get back to people uh, we promise yes <laughs> and I think that's it yeah so thank you for joining us and I hope you all have a good night um, I hope by the time this comes out you know things are looking a little bit um, everyone is vaccinated yes vac- more vaccinated than uh, less plague like yes but If not, just keep washing your hands and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 